All right, good evening. My name is Rock Higgins. I'm the rector here at St. James the Less. And tonight we finish our Lenten study by looking at chapters 13, 14, 15, and the beginning of chapter 16. Um, Mark has a couple of different endings. We'll get into that later. Um, but we're going to use the shorter ending just because tonight's readings are so long. And so we will be uh, finishing up the gospel according to Mark tonight. Um, and with us is our, the Reverend Becky McDaniel. She is the chaplain to St. Catherine School. My daughters have the good fortune of getting to be under her tutelage. And uh, Becky, as our priest associate, we could not be more pleased to have you with us as we finish this up and uh, look at uh, the passion. Um, so we've got some good readings tonight. And uh, we'll be giving those up. Harrison has been with us every week. And uh, these have come and gone really fast. So. Thank you, Harrison. Love these times. It's been good. Uh, Becky, you've got our first reading, so if you want to kick it off with uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Absolutely, and thank you for inviting me to be here. All right. As Jesus left the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what awesome stones and buildings. Jesus responded, Do you see these enormous buildings? Not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What sign will show that all these things are about to come to an end? Jesus said, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many people will come in my name saying, I'm the one. They will deceive many people. When you hear of wars and reports of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must happen, but this isn't the end yet. Nations and kingdoms will fight against each other, and there will be earthquakes and famines in all sorts of places. These things are just the beginning of the sufferings associated with the end. Watch out for yourselves. People will hand you over to the councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me so that you can testify before them. First, the good news must be proclaimed to all the nations. When they haul you in and hand you over, don't worry about uh, worry ahead of time about what to answer or say. Instead, say whatever is given to you at that moment, for you aren't doing the speaking, but the Holy Spirit is. Brothers and sisters will hand each other over to death. A father will turn in his children. Children will rise up against their parents and have them executed. Everyone will hate you because of my name. But whoever stands firm until the end will be saved. So what'd you hear? Could you just lighten that up a little bit? Back? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> Sorry. Um... Yeah. Some intensity. And the, you know, his prophecy of the temple being torn down could not be more terrifying. You know, it's the one thing 
that they saw as permanent and stable and eternal. Mm -hmm. I'll admit I have this tendency in difficult readings like this to go to the part that's comfortable. And so I go to, oh, well, the Holy Spirit guides us. <laughs> we don't have to do the speaking. <laughs> Isn't that nice? But everything that's surrounding that very small <laughs> sentence is yeah. intense. I will say, um, when I was invited to meet the king of the Ashanti tribe in the throne room, this verse came to mind. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank you, God. I was so intimidated, you know, because um, the guy was sitting on this throne and there were elephant tusks wrapped around him. And there's a footstool. It's a, Harrison, you would have loved his throne. It was carved from a single tree. And it was a, a platform. And you could see the rings. And then there was a footstool carved into it and his throne. And there were two cheetahs that were done in um, inlaid gold um, here. They were, he put his hands um, and, uh, you know, he, he uh, uh, you know, and he, they literally had some men in there that um, basically said amen to, at the end of every one of his sentences. <laughs> and so we came in and we were offering these gifts. Um, and I felt so inadequate because we weren't sure we were going to get to meet the king. But when we did, uh, you know, I had gotten some little Virginia knickknacks and the little dollar section at the front of the Target, you know, a little voucher with the Virginia on it and a couple of glasses. Um, and here I am giving this to the king. And it's like, I feel so. <laughs> and thank you. The Holy Spirit was with me. Yeah, it was funny. Well, at least you've met a king, Rock. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's so far above my pay grade. I, you know, I just have to thank the bishop for uh, letting me do that. Um, but like you said, we go to the comfortable parts. We skip over the. Um, so I've always wondered why all hell has to break out before Jesus comes. That sounds like a question for priests to answer, not deacons. <laughs> Let's go to the bishop. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, in, uh, if you remember on the um, third Sunday of Lent, my sermon, when he was up turning the tables, spoke to how you can't have quiet revolutions. There's no such thing as a quiet earthquake. When there is Whenever there's uh, conflict, there is change. And whenever there's change, there is conflict. Um, and that it, it goes hand in glove. Um, the uh, forces in whatever system you're in towards equilibrium fight so hard that when there is a dramatic shift, um, there is always upheaval. I don't care whether that's a thunderstorm in the atmospheric system, um, but the same is true in human systems. Mm -hmm. Revolutions are never easy. They also make you dig deep. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when life is good and easy, it's, um, I don't know. So is my faith. It's just easy. You know, it's, I don't know how, how deep it goes. Um, but when things are hard, um, 
you have to dig deep. Um, I don't know if that's the intention here or not, but it's just the way it is, it seems to me. Well, I think we go to our place of comfort and um, that's what uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. I'm glad that Andrew was finally included with the other three. <laughs> but it hasn't, that doesn't, doesn't happen very often. But right. um, the they immediately say, you know, what is this? They, they I mean, they went to Jesus with it because those words were hard. Um, and he did give them comfort. When COVID hit a year ago, it's hard to believe that it was a year. Um, but it was, you know, our numbers spiked. We had 450 people watching our services every Sunday for yeah. a couple months. Um, you know, we're, we're back to, uh, uh, out of those stratospheric numbers, back to about 150 um, viewers per week. Um, but for several weeks, yeah, we were up there. People wanted comfort. People wanted that simple face. I'm also struck by his warning, beware that no one deceives you. I just never really thought that was something to worry about until this past year. Um, but boy, it is something to worry about now. Well, thinking of our lifetimes, you know, David Koresh, um, right. know, all, all the charlatans, Jim Jones, um, uh, back in the 60s, Helter Skelter, and you know, you know, all that, where these people claimed the authority of Jesus um, for their own whatever delusion or delusions of grandeur or whatever, I don't or just sheer hucksterism. I don't know. I get really upset about the, the families turning against each other. I am with you, Becky. I I cannot imagine turning against my children. Just can't imagine. Fear is a hard, hard thing. Makes us do things we could never envision. Yeah. Anything else on that first section? Everybody uncomfortable enough to move on? <laughs> yeah. Harrison, you want to take that second reading, starting with verse 14? Sure. Um, uh, let's see. Um, yeah, it only gets worse, though, warning. When you see the disgusting and destructive thing standing where it shouldn't be, the reader should understand this. And those in Judea must escape to the mountains. And those on the roof shouldn't come down or enter their houses to grab anything. Those in the field shouldn't come back to grab their clothes. How terrible it will be in that time for women who are pregnant or for women who are nursing their children. Pray that it does not happen in the winter. In those days, there will be great suffering, such as the world has never seen before and will never see again. If the Lord had not shortened this time, no one would be rescued. But for the sake of the chosen, the ones whom God shows, he has cut short the time. If then someone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will appear. They will offer signs and wonders in order to deceive, if possible, 
even those whom God has chosen. But you, watch out. I have told you everything ahead of time. In those days, after the suffering of that time, the sun will become dark and the moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then they will see the human one coming in the clouds with great power and splendor. Then he will send the angels to gather together his chosen people from the four corners of the earth, from the end of the earth to the end of heaven. Well, at least my reading ended on a positive note. Not a competition. I, sorry, I'm misbehaving. Beg <laughs> duels forgiveness. But this desolating sacrilege, um, uh, just so uh, folks that um, aren't familiar with this, about the time Mark was being written, um, there was a statue set up in the temple. And you have to remember that a graven image is verboten. It, it was not allowed to have idols of any kind. Um, and the uh, Roman general, you know, putting the statue in to the temple, it could not have been a worse sacrilege. Um, and if I'm remembering right, Becky, correct me if I'm wrong. He also sacrificed pigs um, and smeared the blood. You're kidding. It was insult to injury. Oh, he knew what he was doing. Um, and it was just horrific. Um, and so this was about the time Mark was writing this. So that's why he, you know, once again, Mark is, uh, I'm, it, it sounds like I'm saying Mark is making this up and I'm not. Mark is putting into Jesus' mouth the words that were in the community. And Jesus didn't give apocalyptic predictions, um, uh, but in the midst of them, Mark is projecting the, what the community's feelings were and having Jesus announce them. And that's why he says that let the reader beware. Um, because once again, these words are for the reader, which comes from the author who is telling the story of Jesus the Christ. Um, to the best of his ability and as honest as he can. Um, but, and we're going to get to Mark later um, when we get to the garden. Uh, that's one of my favorite parts of the, the Gospel of Mark. So I don't want to steal too much thunder about Mark, but uh, what else? I just need to give that two cents of uh, education before we wrestle with it. Well, I think about um, Exodus. And so he's saying, hurry up. You don't even have time to grab your clothes. You know, it, it reminds me of that um, story in Exodus where, you know, gird your loins. You got to go. We're getting out of here after the final plague. And mm -hmm. um, this is makes me think, okay, liberation follows somehow. Um, and then, of course, all the language about chosen harkens back to that as well. Mm -hmm. God's chosen people. Yeah. Free, finally. So, Rock, let me ask this first paragraph about the disgusting and destructive thing standing where it shouldn't and all of that. Um, you're saying that refers to the destruction of Jerusalem at 70 AD? Most likely, yeah. Okay. Um, some scholars um, give uh, to the Jewish revolt. In fact, if you look in the footnote that's in uh, this study Bible, this, mm -hmm. they say that it's the description of the statue placed in Jerusalem in the second century under that revolt. Uh, but it could also point to the corruption of the devil during the Jewish War 66 to 70, which occurred about the time the scholars believe Mark was written. Um, I think it's the second. 
but okay. That's why I have study Bibles, because there are other experts <laughs> far more wise and learned than I. Okay, so then, well, I've never known what to do with these um, eschatological, did I say that right? Um, prophecies of Jesus. I just haven't. Um, so explain them to me, please, you two, both of you. <laughs> or how do you deal with How do you hold them? How do you understand them? They're so specific, so horrifying. Um, and, um, you know, the, you know, the sun being darkened, that hadn't happened yet, I don't think, um, you know, and Jesus coming in power and splendor and what do you do with those? I think about my New Testament professor who was just like, you know, Jesus was wrong. He thought the end of the world was coming and it didn't. And then the early Christians had to figure out what to do about that. <laughs> That's was just that every class he would just say that. <laughs> We're still trying to figure out what to do with that. Yeah. Jesus was wrong. The end of the world didn't come. And I think of if you remember when you and I would get together, Harrison, and talk politics over the last year before the election, and we often would talk about trend lines. Well, if you can see where this is going, and we would, you and I came up with some bad scenarios. Thankfully, they didn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I also think that. He is using very vivid imagery. Um, the best analogy for apocalyptic literature, not just Jesus' sayings, but the book of Revelation, um, and especially book portions of Daniel, they are using um, concrete metaphors to make a point. Um, if you read an editorial cartoon a hundred years after the guy drew it, it would make no sense to you because you don't know the context. Interesting. And, you know, if I go back to the early 80s and there's a humongous bear and he's got missiles for fingers and, he, you know, <laughs> missiles for teeth, you know, it's the Soviet Union. If I don't talk about the Soviet Union, I could get killed if I talk about the Soviet Union if I'm in a country where I'm being persecuted. So I talk about giant bears with missiles for teeth. Wink, wink. And everybody knows what I'm talking about in that context. And when we take these things out of context, we go, I don't understand. Of course you don't. You're not going to understand. The metaphor is not for you. Um, uh, the best. Uh, so when it comes to apocalyptic literature, um, I'm like Becky. I often drive uh, to the place of comfort. And the best way I can describe it is an old, old joke about um some New Testament professors were sitting in their office late on a Friday night, and they were arguing over what on the world Revelation was supposed to mean. And they keep arguing and arguing and arguing, and they've been at it for hours. They were enjoying the argument. And um, the custodian comes through to empty the trash. And as he comes in, um, he apologizes for disrupting the professors, and he says to them, I'm so sorry, professors. I didn't know you were in here. 
I didn't mean to disrupt you. What do you, has you here so late on a Friday night? And they said, well, we're trying to come to, to an understanding about the meaning of Revelation. And he goes, oh, well, that's easy. And he gets the trash and he starts to walk out the door. And they're like, whoa, what do you mean that's easy? And he said, I've read Revelation. I, I get what it means. And they're like, oh, really? What does it mean? And he says, our side wins and walks out the door. And I think we get caught up on the parts that we don't understand instead of listening to that message. Like you said, yours ends with a, on a much better note. Um, then he will send the angels and gather together his chosen people from the four corners of the earth, from the ends of the earth and from the, the end of the earth. That's what Jesus is trying to get to. Yes, it's bad. It's going to be bad. It's going to keep being bad. You know, that was my message at the annual meeting. It's going to stay bad for a little while, but it's going to get better. And when it gets better, it's going to be glorious. Um, and that's what that's that's what I have to glean out of it. Sorry, Becky, do you have anything on that? I think what helps me is to remember what an apocalypse really is. Mm -hmm. It's removing the veil. So it's a different way of seeing, not necessarily some explosive end of the world you know, drama, but that's what we're reading right now. It's <laughs> I can see this being... A metaphorical, as you said. Um, this cycle this that the world goes through every so often, it's, it's a story that repeats itself. Um, I'm certain that um, there have been plenty of times in history when people thought this was happening right now. You know, I mean, um, I, um, this is my fundamentalist sort of hidden self coming out. I can't quite give up on this actually happening one day. Mm. Um, I kind of believe it might literally also happen um, while acknowledging everything that you all have just said. And it's basically in the We'll know when it when and if it happens. <laughs> you know, there won't be any question marks about it if um, you know if Jesus is flashing across the sky like lightning. You know. Well, we've been warned if it does, and we're thankful if it doesn't. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Just because of the time, we're going to push through the third reading. Uh, starting with verse 28 of chapter 13. And this is Jesus speaking. Learn this parable from the fig tree. After its branch becomes tender and it sprouts new leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, you know that he's near at the door. I assure you that this generation won't pass away until all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will certainly not pass away. But nobody knows when the day or hour will come, not the angels in heaven, not the Son. Only the Father knows. Watch out. Stay alert. You don't know when the time is coming. It is as if someone took a trip, left the household behind, and put the servants in charge, giving each one a job to do, and told the doorkeeper to stay alert. Therefore, stay alert. You don't know when the head of the household will come, whether in evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the early morning or at daybreak. 
Don't let him show up when you weren't expecting and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. So what'd you hear? Stay alert. Well, his words certainly, certainly have not passed away. So um, staying alert to the words that have stayed strong through the ages, through the generations. Um, I think I like alert better than stay awake because I like to sleep. <laughs> I could still be alert in my sleep, right? <laughs> I wonder what that means. How do you stay alert? I mean, I wonder what Jesus is really getting at. It's more than reading the newspaper every morning. Well, we put a break where Jesus didn't. You know, he talks about the um, the human one coming in the clouds, um, and then it flows right into this analogy of a fig tree. You know, if you live near a fig tree, you know when it's going to be spring. The leaves start coming out. Okay, if you know that sign. And then he goes into this parable about the household. You know, you know what you need to look for. You know what your job is. And your job is to stay alert and be attentive to the signs that you see. And I think that's about, for me, I hear it being... Don't become complacent. That we're called to be active and participatory and growing um, and responsive. Don't other translations say watch or stay alert? Translate that. Or awake, like Becky said. Yeah. I go inward. I feel like what that says to me is I need to. I need to be alert to what I'm up to, what games I'm playing, what delusions I'm living by, or what, you know, where I'm sort of asleep to what's really happening. I think about, um, I teach world religions and I think about this idea in Buddhism that we're all sleeping Buddhas. <laughs> we just have to wake up mm. to our true nature. Um, so it's also that being alert is like being present to the reality of the world that we, we are just completely blind to beauty, for one thing. You know, we just go through the world, especially now with our devices and just. Good point. We're not even there. We're not awake. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sleeping Buddhas. Um, I would think be not distracted would be another way to translate that. And Lord knows there are more distractions now than people have ever had to live with. So then again, we can think of the apocalypse as the removing of the veil. See what's right there. Mm -hmm. or Harrison, that and the real <laughs> dramatic event at the end. Yeah. It can be a both end. 
All right, Peggy, you want to kick off chapter 14 for us? I can, yes, let's see. It was two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and legal experts through cunning tricks were searching for a way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But they agreed that it shouldn't happen during the festival, otherwise there would be an uproar among the people. Jesus was at Bethany, visiting the house of Simon, who had a skin disease. During dinner, a woman came in with a vase made of alabaster and containing very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke open the vase and poured the perfume on his head. Some grew angry. They said to each other, why waste the perfume? This perfume could have been sold for almost a year's pay and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you make trouble for her? She has done a good thing for me. You always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do something good for them. But you won't always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body ahead of time for burial. I tell you the truth that wherever in the whole world the good news is announced, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to give Jesus up to them. When they heard it, they were delighted and promised to give him money. So he started looking for an opportunity to turn him in. I love the story. There's only four stories that are in all four gospels. And this is one of them. Feeding of the 5,000, the confession of Peter. Um, this one, my mind's gone blank on the fourth one. Um, you wrote a book about it, Rock. I did write a book about it. I should know. <laughs> it's a late night as we as we do this. It'll come to me in a second. But uh, that this story of all stories would be included um, in all four Gospels. We don't give it the credence it deserves. It's not one of these big stories either. I mean, it it is. It's a deep story, but it's it's a. It's not some flashy miracle or, you know, walking on water or, you know, something like that. It, it's um, it's a loving act by somebody um, for Jesus died, you know. During my deacon school training, um, I had to do a practice sermon on that would, the assignment was to give a sermon at somebody's ordination. And I chose this passage um, um, because it feels like um, what ordination means. Um, you're, you're taking your treasure, um, yourself, your skills, your time, your abilities and gifts um, and instead of putting them to work in some way that will reap benefit you're going to 
in a sense, pour them out um, for Jesus on something that's, you know, that's not going to reap new benefits. That's not the point of it. It's, um, it just strikes me as the same. It feels the same. It feels like an ordination to me. It feels like what ordination felt like. Um, it's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. As this was just days before his uh, crucifixion, I wonder if you could still smell it on him. You know, as the uh, Roman soldiers were beating him, but they smell this priceless, priceless perfume. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful stuff. In my um, studies with Cynthia Bourgeau, who's uh, an Episcopal priest and a writer, a mystic, um, we have in some of our gatherings had an anointing ceremony. Um, and she uses it in a, she's created a liturgy for Holy Week that is an anointing ceremony, mm. um, much like the washing of feet, but um, everyone in the room anoints one another the head and the hands and looking into the other person's eyes you say um, love is stronger than death mm. I place you as a seal upon my heart because love is stronger than death it's really powerful mm. Hmm. Anything else? You know, I think sometimes the the less said about these stories, sometimes the better. Just just ponder them, try to see them. Yeah. Why don't you take the next reading, Harris? All right. Um, let's see. Beginning at verse twelve. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, the disciples said to Jesus, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. The man carrying the water jar will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house. The teacher asks, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover meal with my disciples, and he will show you a large room upstairs already furnished. Prepare for us there. The disciples left and came into the city and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. That evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. During the meal, Jesus said, I assure you that one of you will betray me, someone eating with me. Deeply saddened, they asked him, one by one, It is not me, is it? Jesus answered, It's the one of the twelve who is dipping the bread with me into his bowl. The human one goes to his death, just as it has been written about him. But how terrible for that person that betrays the human one. 
it would have been better for him if he had never been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. He said, take, this is my body. He took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I assure you that I won't drink wine again until that day when I drink it new in God's kingdom. After singing songs of praise, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Is when Jesus says, I assure you that one of you will betray me. And they ask, it's not me, is it? And it makes me wonder how often do we betray without even knowing that we betray? The other part I always love about this uh, passage is um, that you've got the mental side, but um, when Jesus dips, most likely that's the bitter herbs as part of the Seder meal. And then as he hands him the matzah with the, the bitter, or uh, the hariset, I'm trying to remember the, the Hebrew term for it. Um, and he hands it to him. And with that taste in his mouth, which was supposed to be the taste of slavery, you know, that's, you know, that's what Jesus has in his mouth as he's handing this. It's just his, uh, it gives me goose pimples to think about um, all the symbolism that's wrapped up in this that we miss because we're not, this isn't our right or ritual or custom. And uh, powerful stuff. There's a reason why this is still liturgy. Mm -hmm. Well, he told us to, but that's, but also, it's, it is what it, uh, it is so rich. Sorry, Harrison, I got you off. No, um, you're right. It's one of those, you need to experience it more than talk about it, um, which we do Sundays when we gather. Um, um, but I was, I just, you can feel thousands of years of history. You know, this is not, this is connected um, both going backwards and going forwards. Um, um, yeah, I, I'm just sort of in awe of the image of it, the, pre, the, the description of it. Um, I mean, thinking back about um, God commanding Moses to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death, knowing that, looking forward, that his son would be doing this, you know, in, in sort of a fulfillment of this type. Um, um, and then to actually to have been in the room, to be one of those that received this um, and look back on it. I just, 
um, you know, it just sort of strikes you dumb, the, the weight of it, the majesty of it, and the, um, the meaning of it. Mm -hmm. I've always been haunted by the phrase when he had held bread and said, this is my body. Um, it just feels like it has an echo quality. Just as the children of Israel in Egypt had no idea of what this really meant. I wonder how much of an idea we have of what this really means um, when Jesus takes bread and says, this is my body. Um, and I won't drink of this cup again till I drink it new with you in the kingdom. Um, we're still in the middle of this story. This is, this is our piece for right now, but we really don't know what it's pointing to in some future time. We can only guess and imagine. Yeah. And Becky, you're uh, doing Monday Thursday for us, so I'm sure you have a lot more to say, but we won't, uh, we'll let you save it for then. All right. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to jump into our third uh, reading from 14, um, starting with verse 27. And remember, they had just left singing on the way to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, you will all falter in your faithfulness to me. It's written, I will hit the shepherd and the sheep will go off in all directions. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if everyone else stumbles, I won't. But Jesus said to him, I assure you that on this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter insisted, if I must die alongside you, I won't deny you. And they all said the same thing. Jesus and his disciples came to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to them, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. He began to feel despair and was anxious. He said to them, I'm very sad. It's as if I'm dying. Stay here and keep apart. Then he went a short distance farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if possible, he might be spared the time of suffering. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you stay alert for one hour? Stay alert and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. The spirit's eager, but the flesh is weak. Again, he left them and prayed, repeating the same words. And again, when he came back, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know how to respond to him. He came a third time and said to them, will you sleep and rest all night? That's enough. The time has come for the human one to be portrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. Look, here comes my betrayer. What'd you hear? I will say in this case, I'm comforted by Jesus's discomfort. I mean, of all the gospels and Mark, Jesus is the most human. And that really comforts me. 
I think the most heartbreaking words in the Bible are, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Um, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus says to his disciples, with God, all things are possible. Um, you know, how the rich get into heaven or something like that. Um, I just have this feeling that, um, I mean, this is the divine trinity we're talking about, that this is unprecedented. Um, that that there's sort of a, it's not like there's a di division, like in animosity, but um, they're having to step away from each other. Or, or the father is having to step away from his son. And say no. Well, I think of all those dramatic movies where you have one person on one side of the door who's about to die and the other person on the other side of the door and the person outside the door looks away because it's just so painful. Um, uh, that they can't even stay with them because the pain is so intense. Um, and I, I see that, that, you know, why are they, you know, why are they rushing to sleep? Um, it's been an intense week. It's been an intense night. Um, and it's all night long at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, Jesus um, whenever I lead retreats, usually when I, we're doing our closing session, we'll do Compline, and I always say, "Sleep well, sleep fast." Tomorrow starts early. I did that uh, last weekend uh, for a retreat I was leading. Um, you should practice what you preach, Rob. Well, the problem is I do sleep fast. That's <laughs> now I need to start sleeping well. Um, but uh, the uh, yeah the I, I, you know, when, when our brains overload, we shut down. However, we do that. I think that the disciples, you know, the flesh was willing, our spirit was willing, excuse me, um, that the flesh is the first thing that falls apart. I get worn out from church with Holy Week. I mean, and and that's nothing compared to what they went through. If you ever get a chance to go to Gethsemane, um, Jerusalem is such a tiny place. <laughs> you know, once again, we have American imaginations because our land is so big and spread out, um, but everything is just so on top of each other. What we picture in our mind is miles apart is blocks. Really? Oh, so the temple is, you know, <laughs> so the temple's up here. <laughs> it's a, a steep valley, and down here at the bottom is Gethsemane. And then the other side is the Mount of Olives. You know, we're like it's like a quarter mile from the temple to the top of the Mount of Olives. And there's a, and the Kidron Valley is just this very steep valley. And then the bottom is this olive grove that's been there for two thousand or two thousand years or longer. And that's Gethsemane, you know, tucked away in there. Uh, now, if you go, um, the hillside is covered with. Um, 
Jewish cemeteries um, awaiting the, the coming of the Messiah um, and his glory, you know. And uh, it's uh, fascinating stuff. But um, we're, we're talking about uh, truly things that are just so close to each other. And if you keep going down, the, so if the, once again, if this is the temple up here and this is the Mount of Olives down here and the Kidron Valley is here, if you keep going down the Kidron Valley and go around the Temple Mount, um, that's where the main entrance was. Now it's under the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But just on the other side of that was Caiaphas's house. We're, I mean, we're literally talking like two and a half blocks. <laughs> and, and this is all so on top of each other. Um, I remember uh, when I got to go and just uh, seeing it all there, you're like, you know, how do they keep them straight? Because just the story upon story upon story after years. It's funny, the end of the, um, so Temple, Kidron, you know, Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley, and then the end of the Temple Mount down here, the Wailing Wall is over on this side. And so you come around the Wailing Wall and those entrances, you can still see the archways where you would go up to go up to the Temple Mount. And there's the baths where you would ritually cleanse yourself before you go in. Right there at the outside of the archways are two um, humongous bedrock boulders that have been there for 2,000 years. And it's the only place in Israel that I know of that you can point to it and it says, I know for a fact Jesus stepped on this rock because that was the way you would go in or the way you would come out. We don't know which one was the in and which one was the out, but he, he touched both repeatedly going in and out of the temple. And so, uh, you know, and it's funny because there's, no, there's not really anything touristy there. It's just this archaeological site that you have to pay 50 whatever to get in. Um, but that's the one place where you can put your foot on the rock where Jesus stood. And it's just literally around the corner from where all this takes place. Wow. And the arrest, they literally would have gone down the Kidron Valley, gone around the Temple Mount to Caiaphas's house, which is right there. Um, and that's what we're about to get to. I don't want to steal that thunder, but it's, uh, it's wonderful and overwhelming. Um, Becky, have you been? You were nodding. No, I was nodding because if you can't go, this book. Yes. Take you there. <laughs> Great book. Yeah. Highly endorsed James Martin. Yes. Martin. Jesus. Yeah. So just oh, hearing you describe it, just like reading, you're just as eloquent. Oh, eloquent. you're kind. <laughs> he's one of my favorite writers. He's he he's wonderful. And in several Martin Scorsese movies, by the way. I'm really? Fanatic. Yeah, he, play, he baptizes uh, De Niro's baby in The Irishman. He's he's the priest in the Irish. Oh, okay. Some consultant work on some other stuff. Sorry, I, well, I'm, I, reading, I'm reading one of his books now that he talks about going to uh, an, an actors retreat with these New York City actors. So there you go. That's yeah. why he's there. Well, and Colbert loves him. Yeah. Our diocesan convention was at the same hotel. He was having a convention, and I didn't find out. I got home from an annual convention two years ago. And looked at his uh, Facebook feed or his Instagram feed. I can't remember what. And I found out I was in the same hotel. I didn't get to see him. I was so mad. But yeah, James Barton, uh, great, great, great guy. Yeah. One day I'll meet him. Yep. Sorry, back to... Am I <laughs> Back to this, uh, Gethsemane. Anything else? I think I'm reading the next portion, right? Yeah, well, this is where it gets really hard. Right. 
So thank you, Becky. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came with a mob carrying swords and clubs. They had been sent by the chief priests, legal experts, and elders. His betrayer had given them a sign, arrest the man I kiss and take him away under guard. As soon as he got there, Judas said to Jesus, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they came and grabbed Jesus and arrested him. One of the bystanders drew a sword and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Jesus responded, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like an outlaw? Day after day, I was with you teaching in the temple, but you didn't arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And all his disciples left him and ran away. One young man, a disciple, was wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They grabbed him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. They led Jesus away to the high priests and all the chief priests, elders, and legal experts gathered. Peter followed him from a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the guards, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were, there, were looking for testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death. But they couldn't find any. Many brought false testimony against him, but they contradicted each other. Some stood to offer false witness against him, saying, We heard him saying, I will destroy this temple constructed by humans, and within three days I will build another, one not made by humans. But their testimonies didn't agree, even on this point. Then the high priest stood up in the middle of the gathering and examined Jesus. Aren't you going to respond to the testimony these people have brought against you? But Jesus was silent and didn't answer. Again, the high priest asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the human one sitting on the right side of the almighty and coming on the heavenly clouds. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard his insult against God. What do you think? They all condemned him. He deserves to die. Some began to spit on him. Some covered his face and hit him, saying, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. If you ever get to go to Caiaphas's house, <laughs> um, in the basement, there's a cistern. And in the cistern, they found eye bolts to put chains through. And they believe it very well could have been a holding cell. Um, and if you climb the ladder and go down in that cell, um, our cistern, um, I've never felt just the oppressive energy of a space as great as there. The slave castle in Ghana, um, the concentration camps in Germany, and that cistern down in the basement of Caiaphas's house. I just, uh, I, I, I can't put words to it. Um, and uh, while they were arguing upstairs during this illegal trial, it was not illegal for the Sanhedrin to meet um, at night um, so that your accusers um, would, would have to face you in the day. Uh, uh, there was so many things wrong with what was happening here and um, just horrifying and terrifying 
um, and that they were so scared of what he was saying that they had to do this, um, you know, kangaroo court to get rid of him. Um, yeah, just, uh, yeah, powerful stuff. Now, what did y'all hear? This is bringing it very fresh to my mind. Well, I, I think it's in the other stories, doesn't Jesus say something about the violence of the ear getting cut off? But he doesn't really address that in this one. Am I right? Well, and Peter is the one who does it, not the, a bystander. That's right, 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 right. And then Jesus says something to Peter. Okay. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, there's this strange naked guy that you don't see in any of the other stories. What does that mean? <laughs> well, you know, well, my favorite theory about that is because it's uh, nowhere in Mark is there anything extraneous. I mean, Mark cuts to the quick. He tells the everything you need to know and nothing more. And then at the high point of the story, he throws in this naked waiter who's followed them from the upper room. And um, one of the, my favorite theory on this is that it's Mark. He wrote himself into the story. Because huh. John Mark that comes up in Acts, how was he introduced to this whole thing? They just happened to book the room where he has his night job. And um, John Mark, you know, is the is the waiter who follows him. And he was able to say, once again, this is all theory. There's no way to prove any of this. But boy, I love this idea. <laughs> because, you know, where because only at the high point of the story um, would you slip in this really obscure thing. And the trauma of a teenage boy having to run home naked. Especially a Jewish teenage boy to run home naked, you know nothing could be more traumatizing because uh, you know you wouldn't show yourself naked, um, um, especially in public. Um, but he runs home. Um, anyways, that, that's my, that's my favorite theory. Have you heard that too? Or I have. Yeah. I haven't, but I'll go with it. <laughs> it's so much fun to think about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once again, we go to the comfortable parts where we can laugh because the rest of this is so. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a poem I used to perform um, about uh, the cost of discipleship, and uh, um, uh, uh, just the, the last portion. Are you man enough to see the need and man enough to go? Man enough to care for those who no one wants to know. Man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear. To battle through Gethsemane and loneliness and fear. And tell me, are you man enough to bear it at the end? The moment of betrayal by the kisses of friend. Jesus loved Judas. And Jesus, you know, the way Mark tells the story, Judas decides to turn Jesus in over this alabaster jar where someone said they love Jesus too. Mm. And that pettiness and that jealousy 
inside the followers of Jesus, I think of how that still haunts the church. You know, where somebody's loving extravagance. Um, I'm a, I'm an aspiring Franciscan, and the, one of the dichotomies of St. Francis is he was impoverished except when it came to churches. He wanted his churches to be glorious because he loved Jesus so much, his creches, and he invented the nativity scene because he wanted everybody to be in the story, and the story is so real. Um, and I see the woman who gives this, you know, and the, the expense of it was almost two years' wage, you know, in one act of extravagant love. And that love, Judas couldn't handle because he couldn't control it. Hmm. Um, and that's when he turns Jesus in. Um, and then to do it with a kiss. Ah. Yeah. It's all so real. Anything else on this? No. All right. Harrison. Yes, sorry. Verse 66. No, it's yes. a... Meanwhile, Peter was below in the courtyard. A woman, one of the high priest's servants, approached and saw Peter warming himself by the fire. And she stared at him and said, you are also with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. I don't understand what you are saying. And he went outside to the outer courtyard, a rooster crowed. The female servant saw him and began a second time to say to those standing around, this man is one of them, but he denied it again. A short time later, those standing around again said to Peter, you must be one of them because you are also a Galilean. But he cursed and swore, I do not know this man you're talking about. And at that very moment, a rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered what Jesus told him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down some. You know, um, as this story is unfolding, as we're reading it, um, I think of um, the different players. Um, you have Judas, you have the religious elites that turn against them. You have his followers that, that you know, when that sort of cave. Um, um, and then you have, you know, we'll get to it, the Romans that get brought into the story and just for expedience sake do the, you know, do the brut brutal hard work, um, the killing. And, um, and um, you know, we're all in this story somewhere. I mean, this is not them we're reading about. This is us. And pretty much every one of these people represent a constituency and a part of something that I am capable of. Um, it's, it's kind of like this collision between God and humanity. And we are all 
in this story. Um, and like the guy in the joke you told, um, thank God, God wins. Um, but I just think we need, when we read this, um, we need to put ourselves in this story. Mm-hmm. And then when we do that, um, God puts himself in our story too. He responds. The Gospel of Mark is not as explicit as the Gospel of John. But in John, it's very clear that the fire that they're walking themselves around is a charcoal fire. And the word charcoal is only used twice in the New Testament. Once at the fire outside Caiaphas's house. And then the other one at the beach where Jesus asked for some fish while Peter is cooking. Really? And you have, and so the, um, you know, the one of the strongest triggers for your memory is the sense of smell. Mm. You know, when you get a whiff of something it, and you, I mean, literally your brain goes somewhere else. Um, and as Jesus is sitting there waiting for his fish beside the lake, um, next to that charcoal fire, um, Peter smells it. And do you love me? Do you love me again? Do you love me a third time? Don't tell me this is accidental. You know, um, you're right. Um, this, we are, uh, this is us. We are them. Um, and the reason why I, you know, Think of it this way. The reason why I feel so strongly that the Gospels are true is that nobody would let themselves be portrayed this poorly. I'm just speaking of the disciples. If they weren't telling the truth, (laughs) we would have cleaned it up if we were telling this story for our sake. Um, But because they are telling the story for Christ's sake, um, they they let themselves be portrayed as they really were. but that triumvirate of uh, denial and the triumvirate of forgiveness is so powerful. And especially when th- that charcoal comes in. Mm. I'd never realized that, that that's powerful stuff. Yeah, it is. When I light the uh, incense burner for when we do incense and I light that charcoal, I always think on that. Anything else on Peter's denial? I'm talking a lot more tonight than I probably should. I apologize. He knows not what he's doing. Forgive him. <laughs> I'm sure Peter felt like Judas, but it's not the same. Well, there were trails and then there's denials. And I think of the times. Um, Judas was not under pressure. He chose to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think of how many times I deny Christ a day, an hour. The little times when I could be nice, should be nice, could be loving, could be forgiving, and I choose to be petty or small or self-seeking. I see that as when we uh, deny Christ instead of deny self. And every one of these guys that scattered later in their life did not scatter. They all died for him. Mm-hmm. You know, 
um, horrible deaths. So um, I think the path to that kind of faithfulness comes through seeing yourself more clearly, which means you have to, I think this is, I think Peter's denial and all of our denials are stepping stones towards a deeper faithfulness. Um, You know, Abraham screwed up, screwed up several times, but when, when it really counted, he stepped up and followed through. Um, um, I think we learn faith through not being, we learn to be faithful by recognizing how unfaithful we can be. And you'll have to preach a sermon, one of you, on cleaning up what I just said sometime, because I'm not sure it made sense. (laughs) Well, that's chapter 14. Um, uh, Thank you. We're going to jump into chapter 15. Welcome back. We're at chapter 15, and uh, I've got the first reading, starting with chapter 15, verse 1. At daybreak, the chief priests with the elders, legal experts, and the whole Sanhedrin formed a plan. They bound Jesus, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, that's what you say. The chief priests were accusing him of many things. Pilate asked him again, aren't you going to answer? What about all these accusations? But Jesus gave no more answers so that Pilate marveled. Now during the festival, Pilate released one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. A a man named Barabbas was locked up with the rebels who had committed murder during an uprising. The crowd pushed forward and asked Pilate to release someone as he regularly did. Pilate answered them, you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of jealousy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate replied, then what do you want me to do with the one you call king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What wrong has he done? They shouted even louder, crucify him. Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowd, so he released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus whipped and handed him over to be crucified. What'd you hear? It just seems all too familiar. It's, yeah. Jesus gave no answers. I think that's very important. And that pilot. Pilate marveled at this fact that Jesus gives no answers. Well, giving, uh, especially things that you know to be outright lies, energy, um, empowers them. And I can see, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to give any credence or credit to it. 
you know, what astonishes me is, is that the very people that read this, that um, know this story, that claim to believe in Christ, and maybe do believe in Christ, still do this, have done this. Um, you know, the church history is full of this being redone to heretics, to people that just disagreed with the established, you know, ideas at the time. Um, um, I don't get it. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I don't know how you can read this story and then do something like this and not see yourself where you fit in. Um, it goes back to Jesus saying to be awake, to be alert, um, to watch, because you could find yourself going down a path that leads to something like this. I don't think that's in the cards for you or me or any of us, but I don't want to be dumb about it either and just say um, we're not capable of something like this, given the right pressures and circumstances. Um, Seems that this theme keeps coming up recently in studies that I've been doing, um, conferences, religion conferences I've been attending. Last weekend I did a quiet day retreat with um, the community of St. Mary, just Episcopal nuns in Sewanee. It came up again, and that is you to be very careful not to become the enemy that you are confronting. Yeah. You know, in our world right now, we have a great risk of becoming what we think we're fighting against. Mm -hmm. You see that here in this story. Well, whenever we choose expediency over doing what's right, we are pilot. He knew the truth, and the truth would set him free. Um, Um, and uh, and we put such blame and guilt on him that he's in our creeds. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I wonder how God, the Father, didn't just pull Jesus out of there and nuke the whole place. <laughs> I really do. I mean, I, you know, if you saw this happening and you could, wouldn't you? Um, I would, certainly. Um, that's the astonishing thing. Um, Becky, what you said just now, um, I look at the videos of the people that stormed the Capitol in January. And a lot of them were carrying crosses. You know, they were thinking that God was leading them to do this. And I, I want to take them out. I do. Um, 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 and as I've been planning for tonight and reading this story, um, I keep coming back to this. Um, Jesus doesn't let us do that. 
he saw it all. He saw the he saw human nature at its worst. And he loved us still. And that's what he's calling us to. Um, it just is. There's no way around it. Um, and I, I, I don't have it. You know, if, if, if I can do that, it's going to be the gift of God because it's not me. Um, I fall way short of that kind of love. Um, when we did the triumphal entry last week, Harrison, you talked about I can't remember if it was you or whether it was uh, uh, Bob, you know, the same crowd that was singing his praises on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, but I think of, you know, the religious leaders wandering through the crowds, um, telling people, oh, you were so wrong. He's not who you think he is. He really needs to be removed. And we want to, we want to crucify him. And that, um, that misuse of power, both uh, Pilate misusing his power by not doing what's right, um, and the religious leaders by abusing their power, by convincing the crowd that they, and once again, well, the, uh, gaslighting the crowd, um, to use our modern term, um, that they were, oh, it's you're crazy to think that he's righteous. He's a, a charlatan, that needs, a dangerous charlatan. Yeah, the, the human heart hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Anything else on this one? All right, Becky, I think you've got our next one, verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the courtyard of the palace known as the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. They dressed him up in a purple robe and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They saluted him, hey, king of the Jews. Again and again, they struck his head with a stick. They spit on him and knelt before him to honor him. When they finished mocking him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his own clothes back on him. And then they let him out to crucify him. Simon, a man from Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus's father was coming in from the countryside. They forced him to carry his cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. They crucified him. They divided up his clothes, drawing lots for them to determine who would take what. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The notice of the formal charge against him was written, the king of the Jews. They crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right and one on his left. People walked by, insulting him shaking their heads and saying, ha, so you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, were you? Save yourself and come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priests were making fun of him among themselves together with the legal experts. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, then we'll see and believe. Even those who had been crucified with Jesus insulted him. 
From noon until three in the afternoon, the whole earth was dark. At three, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you left me? After hearing him, some standing there said, look, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, and put it on a pole. He offered it to Jesus to drink, saying, let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and died. What stood out for you? Not sure if I pronounced the, um, the shout correctly. Rock, you have to help me there. It's been so long since I've had my Hebrew, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I used to pronounce it L-O-I, L-O-I, Lama Sabak, Hani, yeah. The second half, I'm in total agreement with you. It's the uh, L-O-E, L-O-I, I'm Southern, L-O-I, you gotta put a diphthong in there. Oh mm. uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, well, let's start with that just because uh, the, the, uh, the, it was brought up. Mm-hmm. The beginning of Psalm 22. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus being the biblical scholar, uh, my pet theory is that um, this is what he was praying in his mind as he died. And the ending of Psalm 22, a people not yet born will be told the Lord saved his people. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you walk through that entire um, passage, um, like we've been talking about tonight, you know, uh, it ends in hope. It ends in hope that that's his last thoughts um, as he's dying out. And he could only get the first words out, but um, that's what I like to think. Mm. Um, I forget which gospel says that Jesus said it is finished and breathed his last. Um, but I think that that is one possible version of the end of Psalm 22. It is finished. Um, so I've, again, this is not a scholarly, I've heard this in a sermon once that they believe that um, some believe that Jesus recited the song um, on the cross. And is it John? It is finished. That's John. Because I'm not sure. I believe I so. And yeah. John, Jesus is kind of the one in control. <laughs> he's he's much more in control than in Mark. I um, I think the question that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, um, that question, why, um, I think sometimes life just presents us. We, we ask that question of God. Um, and... Um, Early in my sort of Christian life, a good friend of mine um, in his early 20s um, died of um, 
liver cancer. And um, the churches that, you know, he was connected with Young Life and a lot of churches. And there were people praying like crazy and fasting for him. And, and it was just this big thing. And, um, and I wrote his father a letter, um, a, a condolence letter, and was just really grasping at what to say. And, um, and came to this passage, um, just saying, I've been asking why, um, and I don't get an answer. The only thing I get is, is that Christ asked the same question. And to my knowledge, did not get an answer either. Um, and, and that just knowing that might be a comfort. And, um, and years late, several years later, uh, I never knew this man. I just wrote a letter to him because I knew he was Malcolm's father. Um, and um, I ran into him in some church thing and introduced myself. And he said, you wrote me this letter. And he had it in his wallet, pulled it out and showed it to me. Um, and um, years later, I had a occasion to ask the same question. Um, and um, and that Jesus asked that question saved me. Um, I have this feeling that we don't get answers to that question in this life, but we will in the next. Thank you, Harrison. Should I read Maya? Sure. Verse 38. The curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurions who stood facing Jesus saw how he died, he said, this man was certainly God's son. Some women were watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger one, and Joseph and Salome. When Jesus was in Galilee, these women had followed and supported him, and among many other women who had come to Jerusalem with him. And since it was late in the afternoon on the preparation day just before the Sabbath, Joseph from Arimathea dared to approach Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. Joseph was a prominent council member who also eagerly anticipated the coming of God's kingdom. Pilate wondered if Jesus was already dead. He called the centurion and asked whether Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, Pilate gave the dead body to Joseph. He, brought a he bought a linen cloth, took Jesus down from the cross, wrapped him in the cloth, and laid him in the tomb that had been carved out of rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was buried. You know what strikes me in this is the women. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that were there. I don't know where the, the men were. Um, I remember a priest saying something to the effect that um, if, if women didn't, if, if you, the whole church would have folded millennia ago, but for the women that often are not noticed um, or behind the scenes, but you all just 
hold things together when we don't, which is which happens. And maybe um, it was Mary Magdalene who anointed Jesus at Bethany. Mm. That's she's, true. We don't. She's not named in this gospel. Right. Harrison, you were talking before about how did God let this happen, and as uh, you were describing it, I I pictured a father. Uh, ripping his garment and the that image of the curtain being torn from top to bottom oh yeah you know we've got this 30 foot tall curtain at least 30 foot tall curtain and nobody's up there with a ladder then it came from ripping down ripped asunder um you know as god exits the holy of holies to the um, imagery there um, Cannot be lost. Um, and then this Trinitarian upheaval. I, I, I think it took everything within God's power to not step in. He stepped in with Abram with the binding of Isaac. He stepped in with Moses to deliver his people from um, Egypt, uh, you know. But this one time, he just could not step in. I mean, to think about one time when I was a camp director, um, uh, uh, the years before, uh, a year before I got there, one of the um, uh, camp staff had done uh, some inappropriate things and was on file. And I remember... Um, I was grieving and hurt for what had happened to the child. Um, I was livid with the um, guy who had done it to the child. Um, the absolute rage of my staff who wanted to go to town and lynch him, I had to lock the gate and take their car keys so they couldn't go and you know deal with 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 this. Um, and I think on uh, those feelings of um, out of love and passion, wanting just to, you know, destroy everything. Um, and I, I think of God holding the angel hordes back. Um, that this must be. And I don't know why. I can't comprehend why. Um, I'm very gestalt in my approach to things and that whatever it is is what was supposed to be. Um, and uh, But I can't say why. Well, I've been reading the book of Job lately and so that just... Uh, <laughs> ripping his clothes. Yeah, that is the subtitle of Job for me, is why. It, the book asks the question, why? And God doesn't answer it there either. He just says, I am. Or where were you when I made the world? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm here.
well, Jung's commentary on Job, you know, that um, God is either um, crazy, delusional, or who he <laughs> says he is. You know, and if we believe in a God um, of any power whatsoever, that uh, he's right. But the fascinating thing for me about Job as we deal with theodicy, wrestling with the nature of evil and the existence of evil, God showed up. Mm. You know, when we look at all the Psalms, I was talking with somebody the other day who's really, really angry at God and deservedly so. Um, <laughs> they're going through a, a mess. Um, and I, you know, he was like, read the Psalms. Half of them are, you know, just screaming at God. I said, well, it's closer to a third, but you're right. <laughs> you know, God is big enough to take our rage, our, our confusion. Um, and God is uh, still there um, as we confront. One of my spiritual directors said she realized that she really had a, a truly intimate relationship with God the first time she was able to curse him. <laughs> curse God. I shouldn't say him. You know what I mean? I still have that habit of saying he and him for God. But I thought that was um, very helpful when I was going through a very challenging time and she gave me permission to, to yell at God. Yell at God. Mm -hmm. Even your relationship. <laughs> I've told the story in my sermons. I remember the first time um, Selah had, was comfortable enough, uh, my oldest daughter was comfortable enough in her own voice just be mad at me for correcting her. I'm looking at my, once again, with, I hate Zoom because you see yourself, but she gave, those are just like her, I mean, her eyebrows are just like mine. Um, there's enough family resemblance. And uh, I just remember she looked at me and said, I hate you. <laughs> and then she was like, and they burst into tears and collapsed on my lap and crawled up on my lap and just, <laughs> you know, the full body weeping. Um, and I, I had this epiphany of that's God. You know, we, that even though we curse God um, with the uh, injustice that we experience, um, he's big enough to take it and then open his arms and let us crawl on his lap. Um, that he doesn't fault us for those moments because he's playing the long game. You know, and that's what this, the whole, all the readings tonight are about playing the long game. He sees us deeper than we see ourselves, too. Mm -hmm. He saw Peter deeper than Peter's denial. Um, and doesn't hold him to a momentary weakness because he wants an eternal reward yeah for Peter yeah anything else on this most moving of chapters All right.
chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Um, for those that are at home, I just want you to know we're only reading the first eight verses. If you look in the study Bible, if you picked up one of those from the church, um, it is the, uh, the oldest text that we have stop after verse 8. And so we're, um, we're going to honor that. Um, the other portions um, were added later to make it more in line with uh, the other three Gospels. Um, I, I, Mark is, is arguably my favorite Gospel because of how it ends. And we're going to get to that after we read it. But uh, I'll start with chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they could go and anoint Jesus' dead body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they came to the tomb. They were saying to each other, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance for us? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and it was a very large stone. Going into the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right side, and they were startled. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Look, here's the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples, especially Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. Overcome with terror and dread, they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. You both know I love movies. I really love movies. And <laughs> some of my favorite movies end this way. Um, Tom Hanks and Castaway where you don't know which way he's going to go, but you do. The Natural, uh, Robert Redford, uh, that wonderful baseball movie. You don't know if he what happens after he runs the bases, but you do. <laughs> if you've been paying attention to the story. And since the beginning of Mark, we've been at, you know, uh, we were repeatedly asked this question that the disciples asked in the boat, who is this then? They can calm the wind and the waves. Um, and who is this then? Is everything he always said true? And, you know, that's where Mark leaves it. He leaves it open-ended because he doesn't care necessarily what these women think because they were scared and, you know, they didn't tell anybody. Um, it's pretty terrifying. <laughs> it's implications. Um, but he leaves it up to us. Who is this Jesus that we've been talking about? Is he who he says he was through his actions and his words? Actions probably more important than words. Well, that's why I love Mark. It's up to us. We write the ending. And that's what's so powerful about the book for me. I'm struck by the, the emphasis on how they were afraid. Um, and they didn't tell anyone, they were terrified. And it struck me, it rubbed me wrong at first, but the more I am thinking about it, um, what they just experienced um, 
changed the universe for them and literally probably changed the universe um, in some way, um, in a good way. But it was such powerful good, um, such an, that, um, that that is terrifying. It means that your whole construct of reality just got undone. Um, it got done, it, it meant that there's something bigger and better than you ever imagined, and it's going to take a whole new you to figure out the implications of that, and your life will never be the same again. Mm -hmm. um, I remember the bringing my, our firstborn child home um, soon after, you know, um, she was born um, and holding her in my arms and rocking her, trying to get her to go to sleep um, or burping her or something. And a love welled up inside me that was terrifying. It was so strong. I'd never, I didn't know it was possible. It was just completely overwhelming. I was just this little leaf in this giant torrent of a current, um, completely swept away by it. That's the image that comes to mind. Um, they just experienced something so powerful. Um, yeah, I'd be terrified too. <laughs> yeah, it's a different way of looking at fear. You know, we we know that Rock loves to talk about fear as the mind killer, <laughs> but this is a different fear. This is like what is that mysterium tremendum and fascinans? Um, yeah, and I think how many of us are out there who have had a real tangible experience of God and are just too afraid to tell anybody because they, they might think we're crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a different category of fear. Awe. Oh, uh, yeah, fear of the Lord, awe of the Lord. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. I remember the first time I, I got in a boat and went out farther um, than I had ever been before. We were sailing from Miami to Bimini. And uh, you get out there in the Gulf Stream and the water's so deep, you don't see a bottom. And I just remember feeling so, so small <laughs> and clinging to the boat because I looked down and there's no down down there. You know, and the deep is just so deep um, that it is overwhelming. Yeah, you're in over your head. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, but I think you're right, Becky. The, the word religion means to re-ligament mm -hmm. ourselves, um, to reconnect. And uh, so rarely do we talk about those Ligaments, you know, we go to church to re-ligament, <laughs> but our, our, our ligament experiences are often rarely in church. Isaiah, I can, you know, his theophany, that's one that we can point to. Most of us, the rest of them are, you know, just in these moments where we feel so tiny. 
Max Planck, um, the guy who uh, first conceived of quantum mechanics, um, invented the term paradigm shift. Um, and he said, as he was trying to describe this hidden and unknown world, um, that he said he had gone so far down the path that when he looked down, he was standing on nothing. Uh, and, you know, as you were describing the women, Harrison, I, I pictured this was the paradigm shift. And, and Becky, that sense of awe and wonder and horror. Um, not the mind killer uh, horror, uh, um, which is, uh, you know, I think our reptile brain. But this is our frontal lobe, cognizant brain, trying to wrestle and comprehend the utter magnificence. Um, Amen. And thus ends the gospel according to Mark. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. I so appreciate you guys. I love working with you. I feel I pinch myself every day how <laughs> lucky I am. Um, Me too. You're both wonderful. And uh, uh, thank you for all the hard work. You know, I think as we get into Holy Week next week, um, all these stories are going to be fresh for all of us. And so blessings, thanks, and uh, all the best. Godspeed. Yes. Thank you, Rock. Thank you, Becky. Thank you. Good stuff. Well, that's been the Gospel According to Mark. Thanks for being with us from St. James the Less Episcopal Church. Um, good night and God bless. <laughs>